This podcast has been made possible by our local sponsor, Mutual Materials. They also help make Portland possible in a way, since a lot of this city was built with their products. That cool old brick building, it could be Mutual Materials. And the exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store, it might be Mutual's slim brick tile. What about outdoor spaces? Paved patios, retaining walls, fire pits? Those might be made with Mutual Materials too. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest. You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey, exploring the Rose City's architectural and cultural landmarks, forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populate them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've spent 20 years writing about local architecture and the arts. On season two of this podcast, we'll continue talking with a diverse group of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. Thanks again for listening. Today we're turning our attention to a historic industrial ruin. It's an old flour mill complex along the Willamette River beside the Fremont Bridge. We're talking, of course, about Centennial Mills, or what's left of it. This massive property has been vacant for more than 20 years, even though it's prime riverfront real estate. Almost all of the 12-building complex has actually already been demolished in recent years, including a wharf that extended out over the river. Thankfully, the best-known and one of the largest original mill buildings, however, with its signature water tower, is still around. Yet, its future is very much an open question, too. Can it be preserved? Or is it already too late? Or is preserving what's left of Centennial Mills even the city's priority? The neighborhood that Centennial Mills is part of, today known as the Pearl District, is just north of downtown and just west of Old Town. This was once a series of low-lying marshlands feeding the Tanner Creek and the Willamette River. But beginning in the 1880s, the original land claims of William Blackiston and Amos King were filled in with soil and industrial debris in order to create buildable land. Tanner Creek was diverted underground, while a sawmill and a tannery and a woolen mill were established here, along with hundreds of surrounding houses. By the early 20th century, however, Railroad tracks displaced this neighborhood. In 1905, shortly after the Lewis and Clark Centennial Exposition, aspiring railroad magnate Edward Harriman laid down tracks here for his new Portland and Seattle Railway. It was known as the Hoyt Street Yards and promised faster and easier access to East Coast and Midwest cities. Harriman was in direct competition with the resident Union Pacific and Southern Pacific Rail Lines, those two companies own the adjacent Union Station, so while they couldn't stop Harriman from building his Hoyt Street Yards, they prevented his Portland and Seattle Railway from using their station. No matter, Harriman simply built his own depot, which he called the North Bank Station. Until about World War I, in fact, it was from North Bank, not Union Station, 
that most passenger trains to and from Chicago, the East Coast, Seattle, or Astoria operated from. But the Portland and Seattle Railway ultimately turned out to be short-lived, and for most of the 20th century, the Hoyt Street Yards handled freight trains, especially after the company was acquired in 1970 and became part of the new Burlington Northern Railroad. Then, in 1996, a newly formed development company called Hoyt Street Properties, led by Homer Williams, acquired the rights to these 50 acres of rail yards. The following year, the company signed an agreement with the city of Portland to redevelop the rail yard as a high-density, mixed-use neighborhood, with parks and a new streetcar line running along the path of buried Tanner Creek. Over the ensuing quarter century, the Pearl District has become arguably the city's most transformed neighborhood, full of restaurants, art galleries, and lots of condominiums and apartments. It's part of a broader, worldwide phenomenon of big cities reclaiming their industrial working waterfronts for public use. Yet there's always been more urban energy in the southern part of the Pearl District, closer to downtown, and benefiting from institutions like Powell's City of Books or Portland Center Stage. Here in this northern half of the neighborhood, where the Hoyt Street Yards once stretched, it's always been quieter, even though there are a couple of really nice small block-sized parks. Maybe that's because the spot that everything was leading to, the waterfront and the Centennial Mills site, is a quarter-century saga of failed plans and missed opportunities. This land was being used as a makeshift port as far back as the 1840s, taking wheat from Washington County to market. But the complex was constructed beginning in 1910 by San Francisco-based engineer Leland Rosner for the Balfour Guthrie Company, a large Liverpool, England company with extensive investments in Oregon and Washington's wheat trade. The complex was originally known as Crown Mills. Barely a year after it opened, one of its two six-story flour mill buildings caught fire, and because its upper floors were beyond the reach of fireboats, its entire interior was gutted. The structure survived, and the mill was quickly rebuilt with a large water tank atop the roof for built-in protection from future fires. That's the lone remaining mill building and the water tank we still see today. By the end of World War I in 1918, Crown Mills was operating around the clock with 120 workers on site. Balfour Guthrie held on for another three decades before selling its facility in 1949 to Centennial Flowering Mills of Tacoma. That's where the complex became known as Centennial Mills. The mill was sold a final time in 1981, this time to Archer Daniels Midland. But by the late 1990s, Centennial Mill was an outdated facility, and in 2000, it was closed for good and vacated. The city of Portland took ownership of the site, intending to demolish all 12 buildings and build a waterfront green space, a kind of unofficial extension of Tom McCall Waterfront Park. They even considered bold ideas at the time, like building a canal that would extend the waterfront into the neighborhood. But public opposition to Centennial Mill demolition, led by the Pearl District Neighborhood Association, led to a reversal, and the city created a framework plan to keep most of the buildings. Yet over the past several years, three different agreements between the city government and various private developers have fallen through. And in that time, Centennial Mills has crumbled. In 2016, the city demolished several buildings in the complex, but before that happened, I got to tour the largest warehouse that was there. It was a precarious setting where swaths of water-damaged upstairs floors were marked with spray paint to warn of potential cave-ins. 
Raccoon tracks were among the more subtle examples of animal intrusion, and in a time long before COVID, we had to wear face masks to avoid inhaling noxious chemicals. Even so, I felt like I'd been gifted a rare opportunity. After all, this isn't just a cool old flour mill. This is essentially one of the places where the city, or at least the engine of its economy, was born. Because of centennial mills and wheat, even more than timber, Portland in the 19th century was actually for a brief time America's third richest city after New York and Chicago. So in this episode of In Search of Portland, we're going to consider the past and the future of Centennial Mills. The first interview is with Chet Orloff, one of my favorite people. He's a historian and writer who spent a decade as executive director of the Oregon Historical Society in the 1990s before going on to a long tenure as a Portland State University history professor. Chet also, as a young man, worked briefly at Centennial Mills. So we'll talk to him about everything from the sights and sounds of the place to how Chinese cuisine may even have been influenced by Oregon wheat coming from these mills. The second interview is with Lisa Abuaf, who has served as the Director of Development and Investment at Prosper Portland for the past 11 years. Her team makes a series of ongoing neighborhood-based development and financial investments, We'll talk with Lisa about different social, economic, and other factors shaping how the city government approaches this unique place and considers how it can serve a diverse population. So let's get started. And thanks again for listening. Chet, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Good to be here. Well, I really appreciate you coming. And uh, uh, it was your own talk on Centennial Mills in a way that really got me even more interested in in uh, uh, the project or the complex. And uh, uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about any beginning or early memories you might have of, of encountering Centennial Mills uh, and the complex by its other names over the years, whether it's just driving by it or seeing it or wondering about it. What are, what are some of your earlier memories of a working Centennial Mills in the city? Yeah, I've got a couple of thoughts, actually. Uh, first, uh, I remember it from high school because I worked there very briefly oh. as as a kid um, uh, sweeping out things in uh, in the mills and um, then much later uh, in the early 2000s I think it was 2005 or 2006 I was on a committee um, to develop some guidelines or, or a vision for that part of the river district which included a set of design guidelines for Centennial Mills. And from that effort, the city through PDC, Portland Prosper now, through PDC, hired a number of consultants, Sarah Architects and others, Mm -hmm. to more fully develop uh, a game plan, as it were, for the, the future real estate development of Centennial Mills. So I was involved in it from... You might say the, the it's still industrial era, then involved in it from after it closed down into the design and the vision for what it could be. And then, interestingly, I have been involved in, in overseeing the, the creation of a history of the Schnitzer family, which includes harsh investment, which subsequently 
played a brief role in the possible development that didn't go anywhere. But so I was involved in it actually in a third way in that regard. Well, uh, I wonder if we could go back for a second, and I would love to hear a little bit more, if you don't mind, about uh, that first memory that you talked about. Sure. Uh, um, could you in any way kind of paint a picture of what it would have been like to walk in as a worker there, and, and was it kind of loud and intimidating, or was it fascinating, or both? Uh, what do you remember? Yes, both. <laughs> it was uh, quite loud. It was a noisy place, a lot of concrete, obviously, down by the river. It was a working river. And the mills itself had milling machines that ground wheat because it was a wheat and flour mill, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were a lot of there was a lot of machinery around there, uh, conveyor belts, uh, large bins in which wheat and flour were held, things that then loaded the wheat and the flour onto ships, all of which made a lot of noise. So there was there were a lot of moving parts, big dangerous moving parts. You really had to be careful if you were working in a technical aspect. I was, wasn't, was fortunately. They wouldn't let me close to that. I would have been ground up or something. Uh-huh. Um, but um, it was it was a, a noisy place. It was dusty uh, from the, the flower. Um, later, I subsequently realized it was probably dangerous because that can explode, apparently. Yeah. That kind of flower dust. Um and many places it seemed ill-lit, as I recall. Uh, and again, probably because it was all inside and because of the dust and all of that that mm-hmm. was around. It sounds almost a little bit, uh, you know, like an Oregon version of something Dickensian in the sense it of was, the Industrial could, Revolution. I think it could have been. I think it could have been. You know, who knows what it would have been like, you know, a century ago when when there weren't the federal rules about workers' comp and all of that there. Yeah, you bet, you bet. And uh, uh, speaking of which, I wonder if uh, we could go back and talk a little bit about the role that Centennial Mills started to and, and played uh, in, in that earlier history. Uh, I'm not, If I'm not mistaken, I, I remember in your talk talking about how uh, Centennial Mills really played a, a key role in making uh, Portland a surprisingly wealthy city in, in its younger days. Yes, that's true. Um, and it was basically through the, the wheat trade uh, that Portland, in a sense, became Portland because it was as a result of of the uh, connection with the Tualatin Valley and the Willamette Valley where wheat was grown, still is, mm-hmm. um, that made Portland. And it was once the road was built, uh, the Great Plank Road, Jefferson, over Canyon. Um, yeah, connecting with Washington County. Connecting with Portland. Washington County, right. Once that was built, that then uh, uh, distinguished Portland from the other river towns near the mouth of the, of the Willamette River, uh, from Oregon City down to St. Helens, for example. Yeah, and each small town, people don't always think about this, but every big city in America or in other countries had to kind of first fight a a competition with other small towns around it to become that big city, Absolutely. as Portland did with you know Oregon City or or what have you. Absolutely. So the the, the city once uh, then it was a town once it had established itself very early on in the 1840s, soon after uh, the city was founded and even before it was incorporated by the territorial legislature, the uh, the wheat trade had begun. In other words, wheat was being brought by wagon down to the, the wharfs there 
loaded onto ships and then taken down to San Francisco uh, at the beginning of the, the gold rush, uh, to Europe, and especially to Asia, Japan, and China. And uh, that trade began. Um, there's a wonderful story, which I think you've mentioned uh, earlier, of the, the fact that the soft white wheat that Oregon grew so well. Yes, um, the Chinese loved it, right? The Chinese loved it. They ground it up, and, and it became part of, part of the, the recipe, if you will, for noodles. Now, it wasn't the first time, of course, the Chinese had noodles. They'd had noodles for a long time. Marco Polo talked about it. But um, I think the Oregon wheat helped um, uh, grow, if you will, the industry, the noodle industry there, and continues to do so. Uh, yeah, kind of a softer wheat. If it's, it, a soft, it? it's a soft white wheat, precisely. And uh, Oregon then became... Uh, the largest exporter of wheat on the West Coast, and then I think ultimately the United States, and to this day remains so. So it's kind of an interesting uh, connection that um, modern-day Portland has to its early roots. But that was just one part of that early history. Um, Centennial Mills is a uh, was that an offshoot or an outgrowth of Crown Flour Mills, mm-hmm. which in turn, as I recall... I'd have to check my history here, um, grew out of the Balfour Guthrie uh, flour uh, mill and wheat uh, company. This was a, a British concern. Uh, and the British in the 19th century, which is a fact that I think few people really appreciate, were great investors in the United States and particularly in the American West. So, so you had British concerns investing in, in the, the uh, beef industry, mining, huh. uh, real estate, wheat. And uh, the real estate industry was quite big, especially in Portland. A lot of the great buildings up, up until the, the uh, and through the cast iron era, through the into the 20th century, were built by... Scottish American and British American investment companies, as you probably know, and a lot of the banks, investment firms, uh, mm-hmm. were started by them. So the British uh, were here in a to a great degree, and what became Centennial Mills is a representation of that uh, great investment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder what you happen to think about the kind of long and winding road uh, that that the complex has gone on uh, over the last 20 years. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think I have heard, if I'm not mistaken, that there was more deterioration that happened for those buildings in the last 20 years than in than in the century before. Like uh, I toured the building, one of the buildings has now been torn down uh, and there wasn't even a tarp over the over a hole in the roof. And so mm-hmm. um, some of the things, the unfortunate things that happened with deals falling through between the city and developers were, were maybe just bad luck that, uh, um, you know, the Great Recession happened in the middle of it. Um, but maybe there are some really inherent difficulties to making an old 19th century mill complex into a viable uh, 21st century commercial development. As a, as a historian and someone who studied how cities change over time, how much is this kind of thing just inevitable or or what do you make of of the the opportunity that Centennial Mills had to be a kind of destination today? Well, I, th- I think it is inevitable uh, unless a building is well made. 
uh, and um, unfortunately, um, when a, when the buildings were made out of concrete, uh, such as they were, not the best concrete, um, and sometimes rebar was used or in some of the parts of the building. So it seems inevitable that you're going to see that degradation in the quality of the building. And uh, all of these buildings, people don't realize that they have a lot of wood in them. Mm-hmm. And the roofs often are made of wood, the beams and all. So, you know, when they say these things burn down, well, that's because you know they're burning from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And um, when the mill... Uh, went out of business um, 30, 40 years ago or so, or closed down, not went out of business, but closed down. Um, it basically was shut up. And so when we were all looking at it uh, 15, 20 years ago or so, beginning to look at it, we were looking at buildings that had potential then, but were degrading fairly quickly because there was no one in there maintaining them. Mm-hmm. And so what you saw there was a classic illustration of of buildings that had not been maintained, the roofs had fallen in, things had begun to rot, and you know, they got wet inside. They're wet from the inside. They're wet from the water, from the waterfront, the river, the bank. And uh, many things can happen, two of which would be just the degradation of the building from, from moisture, but also the settlement that occurred there at the waterfront. Most of the buildings are s- sitting on fill, and so they're a little bit out of <laughs> off center, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. And so it's p- quite likely that if and when developers got in there to really earnestly look at redeveloping those buildings, they'd you know do some surveys and quickly say, no, that's not going to work because it's it's out of plumb. It's going to fall over. Um, and so that that's been one of the great challenges. And, of course, as the most recent project from, what, what around 2016, 2016, uh, has taken place, the the demolition has taken place, uh, Port, Prosper Portland has attempted to find other developers who've come in there, taken a look at it, and turned around and said, no, no, on second thought, I don't think we're going to do this. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how we go forward then. Uh I wondered sometimes about the possibility of making it some kind of ruins park where we do what we can to make sure that the remaining mill building doesn't fall down, but we don't really try and squeeze offices or apartments in there or yeah. something. Uh, is that a realistic hope? I think it is. I think it is realistic. Uh, as the city, assuming the city continues to grow, um, and that land there is so close in to, to the central city. In fact, it's part of the central city. It's quite likely that um, if if I were to look into the future, which is always dangerous for a historian to do, but if I were to look into the future from the past to some extent, I would see some of that, some of the buildings there, some part of the main building there, the the flour mill, um, being maintained, perhaps as a shell, as a ruin, as you say so well. Um, and the rest of the area completely redeveloped into perhaps some parkland, perhaps, mm-hmm. but also it's great riverfront property. It's no longer going to be a working river kind of place because it's that's no longer practical, I think. But um, you could, I could certainly see redevelopment in terms of, of parkland, 
um, the the riverfront trails that could go through there. Yeah. Um, possibly some uh, housing, um, maybe some uh, office space there. If so, I would very much hope that it would be quite low in height. I've always been a great advocate of stair-stepping down as you get closer to the river mm-hmm. so that you're not blocking views. And if we're going to go to all the trouble of of preserving this large remaining mill building with the water tower on top, you'd think it would need a little bit of room to breathe and, and to be kind of put on a pedestal, so to speak. Uh, and so that speaks to having parkland around it more so than, say, an office building or, or retail or something. And yet an office building or retail are what's going to help bankroll the preservation of, of that mill building even as yeah. a ruin. Well, what you have, fortunately, uh, are two sides of the building, the west and the east, the east being the river and the west being NATO Parkway and then mm-hmm. across from that, uh, the fields park. Uh, from the from the uh, uh, river place riverfront area, mm-hmm. um, and that's a, that's a quite a bit of open space. Plus, then there there are the tracks from you know Union Station coming north. Mm-hmm. So uh, you you do have plenty of you might say airspace around it, um, and it would be quite likely that at least some space, even if it were redeveloped into residential or uh, or a commercial space, that there would be some open space nearby to the to the um, north and south of it. So um, I'm I'm less worried about the open space that would be provided. So that that pedestal uh, look would still be there mm-hmm. um, than I am about the the just the difficulty of of preserving. That building—it's a big building with that yeah. water tower on it. I mean, it's what seven, eight stories or so, and uh, preserving that in a way that could be potentially used. Because even if if it were a shell, you probably would really have to brace that thing up to get close to it to allow the public to get close to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, uh, when I speak about it as a as a potential ruin that we preserve, or, or I suppose it is a ruin now, it, it makes me want to ask you also as a as a historian and someone who was part of founding Museum of the City, what is it about architectural ruins that have a kind of power over us sometimes? It seems like there's something special psychological going on when we're looking at ruins, when we're looking at abandoned places that are allowed to deteriorate on their own. We, we in a sense, have some of our greatest reverence for ruins when you think about like the Acropolis. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I always found it interesting, a, a talk I once heard uh, an architect comparing how people view time in the West versus how people view time in the East. And he was a, uh, he was describing the Acropolis as being an, uh, an example of how in the West we think of time in a linear way and we allow uh, the Acropolis to deteriorate because that's the most authentic. Whereas in the East, they have something like the Issei Shrine in Japan where it's one temple that is ritually rebuilt every 20 years. And mm-hmm. so to uh, to 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 that kind of thinking, the Issei Shrine represents the way the East tends to think of history as circular. And so um, what do you think about ruins and the way we perceive them and, and the power they have over us? Big question. Do I have an hour? Or... <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I, I, a short answer would be, um, I, I think that that there's a there's a strong element of of memory that people in the West have, and uh, uh, many people, not all of us certainly, but many people um, uh, for whom history means something, uh, we we are connected to it through our memories. That's the sort of the organ or the process that we we make that connection to the past. And that past, say with the Acropolis being a good example, or great churches or cathedrals, wonderful buildings like the kinds that we have in downtown Portland, for that matter, um, they, what's interesting about so many of those buildings is they're, they're not simply a, a, an emblem of or an icon of the era in which they were built, but they often combine a number of, of influences, as you know, as an architectural historian. And when we look at a, look at a ruin, I think we're, we're seeing that kind of thing, it, and it connects us in a very important way to those other eras in the past. And I think one of the reasons why, you know, several of the wonderful buildings in Portland uh, mean so much for us because they connect to some great eras of architecture, the Renaissance or Rome or Greece and all of that. Um, and, you, and you see that in so many of the elements, the, the architectural elements that are in them. Centennial Mill is an older place, but right now it, it, its connection might be to the industrial early 20th century. I'm not sure frankly, that that is a, uh, uh, particularly an iconic structure, or even that building is an iconic example of that. Well, it's not the Acropolis, for No, sure. it's not the Acropolis. So what it does do is it does remind us of an industrial era uh, in which Portland really grew. But interestingly, it, it came halfway through that era, and there are still a number of buildings even right across the river that are still active, as Centennial Mills is mm -hmm. not, um, that are doing essentially the same sort of thing. So I think it's important to uh, re remind us of what this building is. I don't, I'm not convinced that you necessarily need the whole thing. I mean, I, that may sound like a, you know, absolute, you know, terrible thing to say. Um, and the water tower itself, which is a wonderful element, there are other water towers nearby, mm -hmm. um, and we would have to, I think, really be cautious in rebuilding that building because it would have to be rebuilt in some respects. Mm -hmm. And then it wouldn't necessarily up. be itself in a sense either. Correct. Um, I think the thing about ruins for me is that um, you see a place where time has kind of stopped, and and you see a place where the soil is no longer being replenished. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes for people it it kind of reminds us of our own mortality and yet we're kind of at the same time attracted to them. Like a, it's a kind of hieroglyphic, uh, you know, on the wall or a cave painting that, that it's um, that it's a reminder that, that not, not all history continues um, without, um, you know, a little bit of mortality in between. Right, right. And I, and I think it's important that, that Americans realize that we actually do have a history, which unfortunately we often forget. 
and that we we need to recognize that there are various ways of 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 remembering of of uh, applying that memory if you will and um, not all of them necessarily have to be aesthetic they don't have to be beautiful for in other words yeah so i i i like the idea of preserving some of the working river and that that building in particular would work as long as it's it's uh stabilized in a way that it's that it will last because there's nothing worse than than poor historic preservation you know mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily work or that begins to look dated and old almost before it's done yeah yeah I, I suppose uh, the situation here with Centennial Mills, uh, why it feels maybe extra special is that maybe it has to do also with – maybe it says something about the Pearl District that uh, for various reasons there aren't many old buildings in this northern part of the Pearl, I guess because it was largely rail yards, for mm-hmm. example. Um, uh, but you, you know, you look at all those – new shiny condos there and you just feel like that neighborhood needs old buildings and then you have a whole kind of master plan creating this line of different parks that's all uh with a with a boardwalk there intended as this processional and so you know we have the end of the processional deteriorating and and being demolished before our eyes and so maybe it feels a little bit more tragic because of the prominence there it could be and and there's another element that we haven't uh, talked about, and that is um, the, that spot is the end of Tanner Creek, mm-hmm. and which of course was a very important uh, creek in Portland's history. So you have the river, you have the the river bank, you've got an industrial building, you've got the the creek there, um, uh, and those are just some of the elements and I could list more but those are just some of the elements that I think it's important that Portlanders continue to to remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Tanner there, Creek and the tannery that was there yes, and so forth. Absolutely. And there just aren't that many that remind us unless you're walking around with say you and me mm-hmm. and a few others of us who are, you know, constantly pointing out, well, this is, used to be the spot that this happened and which uh, enlivens in the true sense of the word enlivens the space and the people's memories who were with us at that time um, but this is the kind of space and a, and a building uh, even even if it's no longer being used as as a mill any longer that can serve that that purpose of holding on to that memory for us as long as it's well interpreted yeah, and, and that means all of these qualities, all of these elements—the creek, the roads, the railroads, the river, the riverbank, uh, the building itself. Obviously, it, it's a reminder, also, I guess, uh, that we're talking about brick and mortar, but everything we're talking about is about stories. And I know you understand this as a historian that that um, we want to preserve the buildings whenever we can, the the important ones, the historic ones. But it's really the stories that need to be preserved, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Stories are critical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Well, Chad Orloff, thank you so much for joining us on In Search of Portland. Been a real pleasure, and I've been a fan for a long time. You're welcome. Glad to be here.
In Search of Portland is also sponsored by Capstone Partners, which plans, finances, implements, and manages commercial real estate investments for investors and organizations across the Pacific Northwest. Capstone's roots run deep with decades of experience and solid relationships. Living and working in Portland and Seattle means this local company is poised to find and act on unique opportunities that outside firms never even see. For more information, visit capstone-partners.com. Lisa Aboaf has been the Director of Development and Investment at Prosper Portland for the past 11 years. Her team makes a series of ongoing neighborhood-based development and financial investments, and she's also a graduate of Reed College. Lisa, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. It's good to be here. So uh, maybe for a second, I wonder if I could just ask you a little bit about Prosper Portland itself. Uh, Obviously, for a lot of its history, it was known as the Portland Development Commission, and I kind of gather that the name change seems to reflect a broader, at least tweak in philosophy, if not a, a, an utter, you know, complete change that it seems to be maybe a little less about just pure real estate and more about economic development, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I, I feel like I hear more about equity as well. And so I wonder if you could just walk me or us through that and, and how your organization has changed or evolved. Sure. I think that's a fair assessment. I think the name change is both a reflection um, of acknowledging and owning kind of the history and the impacts that PDC had on the community, um, both as it kind of grew and helped it grow and the kind of the negative impacts that it had uh, in certain communities, particularly in black, indigenous and people of color communities and lower income communities. So I think that's a fair assessment of kind of uh, intentional pivot. Um, as I think about it, um, ultimately, we continue to do um, real estate work, but we've really asked ourselves, how do we do that differently in a way that reflects community and reflects um, and reflects equity at the core of what we do? And I can give, I guess I can walk through briefly some examples of kind of how has that shown up. But as a department and as an agency, as we think about doing transactional work differently, it really looks like building relationships within community. And as we are entering into what is development processes or real estate transactions, including the community in those discussions, including the community in those processes, and really identifying not just what's getting built, but who benefits from it, who, what are the benefits to our nonprofit partners within the community or small businesses um, or residents. That is interesting to me because on one hand, it sounds like a, a version of common sense, but um, it also speaks to how maybe there was, um, from certain perspectives, a lack of common sense in the lack of equity. Um, and uh, it, it's interesting. And I wonder if this is uh, an evolution that a lot of similar city agencies have gone through or if Prosper Portland is is different in that regard. You know, that's... A I certainly, I mean, I think as we participate in national networks like Urban Land Institute or Brookings or others, I think the particular focus 
on racial equity and the strength of that focus, um, both in the work that we do, as well as the culture and kind of um, the internal operations and how we think about our work is certainly something that is distinct to Prosper Portland. And I think probably is a reflection of where the agency has gone as a reflection of the city. And I think in many ways is tied to the heritage and kind of the race, the kind of racism that sits at the heart of Oregon's history as well. That it is something that really is called out and prominent and has to be intentionally spoken to. That's interesting to me. I uh, I think a lot about this stuff these days. Not be not only because of what's going on in the headlines, the the protests this year and everything, but uh, as I've learned more about the city's history, um, particularly, it seems like uh, there was a period of decades in the mid twentieth century where there were these big urban renewal projects happening in Portland, like a lot of cities like the South Auditorium District or the combined effect of I-5 and Memorial Coliseum and Emanuel Hospital. And uh, certainly everybody understands that it was no coincidence these coming in immigrant neighborhoods, pr- predominantly immigrant neighborhoods or or uh, immigrants uh, and people of color. And so, um, you know, it, it does seem like a... Um, the way Prosper Portland is operating now seems to be with a with a mindfulness about that somewhat recent past of the mid-century especially. Yeah, and I think it shows up just as examples of um, the work that we're doing and where we're focusing. It shows up in kind of a pretty intentional process and focused around equity with projects like Broadway Corridor, right? Like it's the classic example we point to, which is um, Prosper undertook similar efforts in the past on behalf of the city that were kind of partnerships with our Transportation Bureau and our Parks Bureau and our Housing Bureau um, in South Waterfront in the Pearl District. But but it was a really, Broadway Corridor was a really different process um, that lent itself to being pretty intentional about both what was going to be built and who we were involving in the process to define that and ultimately who benefits from that and speaking clearly to that through a community benefit agreement. I think the other, um, the other example of kind of what does development and community-based development look like as, as Prosper Portland is also north, in North Northeast and our community development initiative action plan and how we are kind of working and just being a learning organization about how do our tools and products function from our loans to grants and what needs to pivot to really kind of um, create and realize jointly with the community the outcomes we want and to have an oversight um, community group and groups who are working on that with us and in partnership with us. I see, I see. Um, and Broadway Corridor is, of course, um, a, a, a good place to pivot to Centennial Mills. And, and maybe um, first we could uh, start by considering how Centennial Mills relates to Broadway Corridor, or if you consider it a part of Broadway Corridor, because there are these big kind of pieces um, that are fairly close to each other. Yeah, happy to. Um, it's certainly, I think, you know, the nexus, but tw- we don't think about Centennial Mills as part of Broadway Corridor. Um, there's certainly a nexus in that they um, sit within a similar community um, in terms of the Pearl District and Old Town and kind of the 
interfaces of the two. And then clearly there's kind of a financial connection for us as Prosper Portland. The resources that we have or a significant proportion of the resources that we have for both of those projects come from what's called tax increment financing, which is kind of a geographically constrained financing mechanism. And they are both within a single area. So there certainly are financial trade-offs of kind of however we're thinking about Centennial Mills, whether as kind of a potential resource or cost, um, has a direct impact and interface with what's happening at Broadway Corridor. I see. Now, um, uh, I wonder if we could just for a moment or two unpack uh, what maybe the lessons learned or or how might be or how how we might um, frame some of the difficulties of the past 10, 15 years with regard to making development agreements with a couple of developers, lab holdings, and then harsh investment properties. Um, and then a third, uh, I believe, Lind Opportunity Partners. And um, I imagine to some degree, each one is different. But um, when I think about that, I think about um, recession and economic uh, um, ebbs and flows that have um, been a little bit of bad luck in terms of timing, maybe, but it also seems like there's uh, some inherent site challenges there that um, even though in a way Centennial Mills is right there in the Pearl District and it's valuable to have a waterfront site, it's also a little bit of an island uh, of sorts because of uh, NATO Parkway and that thoroughfare there. So how would you assess um, what the lessons learned are from uh, those past efforts? So I think you kind of internal to your question certainly touched on many of the challenges and there are probably kind of um, additional ones that we could add to that list. Um, history is always important when we're thinking about any site kind of and how we came um, into its ownership and what was our, in our original intent. So just for folks who aren't aware, Prosper at the time PDC actually bought the site um, to be for the site to be demolished and turned into a park as part of the overall park sequence, which at that time was kind of a developing community. It was back in in the early two thousands. Um, yeah, as, the Pearl District and the River District Agreement, right? Exactly. And, and some of those developments. Exactly. So if you imagine where um, Neighborhood Park is today, it was anticipated that that would kind of open up to the river and provide access to the river via a park. Um, as that neighborhood grew. Um, there was increasing interest in the potential to preserve um, some of the buildings on the site. And so we actually paused those plans, those parks-based plans, and worked with the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability and did what's called the Centennial Mills Framework Plan. It laid out kind of objectives that allowed for flexibility, just knowing the challenges of the site, um, even at that time. Um, and then, as you mentioned, we went into a number of... Um, a sequence, I would say, of different development partnerships. And maybe that's where I'll transition. You hit kind of you talked a bit about site challenges. It's a really challenging site. I just um, it was actually 14 buildings that had been connected together over time. Um, and so some of those buildings as time progressed and it was no longer used as a mill, the buildings were actually separating and kind of starting to, a portion of them were starting to kind of move into the river. So there was just kind of a life safety issue that needed to be addressed. Um, I think there was, there are there were a lot of no, unknowns about 
both the feasibility and the cost to preserve those buildings. Um, and so I think you had a marrying up both in terms of our first partnership that we are pursuing with lab and then again with harsh investments of um, just trade-offs between the level of investment and what was being preserved and the potential for it to be created. It was it was looking it was it was as their development proposals came forward, it was in the tens of millions of dollars to preserve and renovate the buildings in a way that felt like it really kind of fulfilled the framework plan. Um, and you had that happening at the same time as you had kind of market cycles happening. And, and then you're right on also that the site is really isolated. And so from a development perspective, it really is almost standalone. So when you think about parking or provision of open space, um, it's really a standalone entity because it's beautifully knit to the river and ultimately has NATO on, on the other side. Um, so from a development standpoint, you really have to look at it as a self-contained um, unit. And, you know, the uh, the last thing that I would add to site conditions is there are a number of just code based goals on that site that are pretty unique um, that you will see up and down the river in Portland. Um, so once you're doing development along the river in Portland, there are uh, kind of there's clearly the goal around Greenway and a setback for the Greenway so folks can access and recreate it. That setback actually increased with the last Central City 2035 plan. So it went from a 25 foot setback to a 50 foot setback. And you had a site that ultimately originally had been developed to be out over the river and into the river rather than set back from the river. So that has its own challenges. And then you also have, there was a sequence of kind of environmental goals and just environmental regulations that once you're working in the river, you start working more with state agencies and federal agencies. So. I would say all of those things are just kind of site inherent complications, divorced from financial co complications. And then I would talk about, again, as I mentioned earlier, this is a site that sits within a TIF district. You know, there are inherent trade-offs as we think about where we place investment and how. Um, and clearly, as we held ownership of the site, things like the Old Town Chinatown Action Plan and its commitment to really kind of double down our investments on the small businesses and important cultural institutions of Old Town came up. We were able to successfully acquire the post office site and kind of there was clearly a vision and an opportunity there. So when we started to look at um, the tens of millions of dollars that early proposals had required to accomplish improvements on kind of a few acre site relative to a 10 plus acre community or new um, or new community and neighborhood into the future with particular focus on equity both in Old Town and Broadway Corridor. Those are all the challenges that kind of have been knit together over time. I see. I see. And uh, I've read uh, that the conceptual program now includes some of the things you talked about, like a greenway trail and public access through the site. And I also read that it includes mixed income housing, uh, in addition to renovating the flour mill building. And, and I guess I have two questions related to that. Um, a, what's your best guess of the condition of that remaining flour mill building? Because it, it feels like from a from a historic preservation or or old building lover uh, perspective, that 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 flour mill building with the water tower is really the the one that people care most about. And so I'm curious about 
how, you know, what's realistic for that building. And um, I guess I'm also curious about, you know, how realistic or, or how housing fits in here. And it had related to a, a another question I had or a wondering I've had for years, and it may be unrealistic, but I've sort of thought to myself, what about going back to a version of the original plan to make it a park but a kind of ruins park, like, say, Gasworks Park in Seattle or certain examples in Germany or Holland. Um, you know, um, has there ever been anyone kind of advocating to kind of say, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't have a developer here trying to make money at all. Maybe we should just let it be the park that we originally called for only with without demolishing every single building. Yeah, those are great questions. Um, I'm going to try it. So Clearly, um, there, there continues to be development interest. So just to give folks a sense of where we are in the process, about a year or so ago, um, following our, we had a third development partner who took a look at the site, kind of walked through a number of due diligence activities with us. Uh-huh. And that memorandum of understanding then terminated. Um, so there's certainly, um, we, we, both um, picked up uh, developers who had submitted to that expression of interest where we had entered into kind of an MOU with Lynn Development. We also reopened the listing. And so there's there continues to be significant development interest in the site. So it's certainly something that um, we don't want to lose the opportunity of um, introducing both new kind of folks and activity to the neighborhood. And I also think there's kind of an underpinning goal to that based on conversations we've had with city council around inclusionary housing and making sure that there are kind of opportunities for new housing along the river that includes affordable housing through inclusionary housing. Um, So that's something we'll continue down the path of. Um, We certainly, um, so we have a group of um, proposers. We've been working on a short list, probably need to recircle back with them, just understanding impacts of COVID, um, particularly projects that are in the planning phase. Um, we're seeing ongoing interest, but just, you know, making sure that that interest is still there. Mm-hmm. So we'll continue down that path. I think it is important to kind of activate the river, activate that particular location, um, and provide opportunities for inclusionary housing and affordable housing. And at the same time, I would say that we have certainly heard voices similar to kind of an alternative vision that you've mapped forward, which is as a park, as an open space, kind of returning um, returning back to the original vision. I do wanna to touch a little bit on just kind of the challenges of the building. Um, so yeah. we live in the land of earthquakes. And so, you know, there are inherent structural challenges for any building of this age uh, and kind of how it was originally built. Um, so there's certainly seismic upgrades and pretty significant seismic upgrades that would be needed. Um, and the second thing I would say is it has a tough footprint. And you'll note kind of as you look at pictures of it, it has no windows facing the river. So there's a number of changes that would need to happen both internal to the building as well. If you were to think about reusing it for kind of those of the development community, it has a really inefficient footprint. What would you do with it? Kind of the height clearances would probably need to be changed. So it's a challenging building to rehab. It was not built 
to be, it was built to be a warehouse in a complex of warehouses. It was not to be built to be office or a hotel or residential. Um, so it certainly has its own inherent challenges. Um, and then I would actually add on to that. I think even as a remnant, um, we have had conversations with the Parks Bureau in the past of what would it look like to be a remnant. And from their perspective, as well as the private community's perspective, even if it was a remnant, it would need to be seismically reinforced. So if an earthquake were to happen and people were enjoying the open space around it, that there was at least some amount of kind of support structure against it, holding it up so that people weren't at danger of being harmed. I see. I see. Well, it's definitely a tough nut to crack, but... Um... There's a there's a bright side to all this too that that um, uh, even though there's been some demolition there there's there's still an opportunity I think I would hope and it I, it seems like you would agree that there's an opportunity still in theory at least to do something that's a a win win in time and maybe it won't happen right away especially when there's a lot of focus on Broadway corridor for understandable reasons and there are other places around the city that might be good ideas to look at um, even before Centennial Mills, I would suppose. But it does seem like, um, uh, you know, that it's a special site with a lot of history. And, um, you know, in a way, like, it's a kind of series of tough problems, but enviable problems, just in that there's um, so much to work with there if if the nut could be cracked. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I would f- kind of, as I think about the trade-offs and the challenges to this site, I think there are two things that come to mind for me. One is I think kind of COVID has um, really transformed the universe we live in and how we think about our work. And so I think it's important that that's the overlay from everything like our grant programs all the way up to Centennial Mills and how we're thinking about it. Um, And I, one of the immediate things that is being seen across various communities that I would just share with you is this is a really tough site not to not only to develop but also to manage. There is we get if not daily regular phone calls from the community because it is a popular spot for graffiti and vandalism on a regular basis. We have break-ins on a regular basis from an asset management point of view. It's one of the toughest sites we have. Um, anytime we have an industrial, particularly a historic industrial site, it tends to have a lot of points of entry <laughs> into the site. And so just managing the security on that site is really challenging. We actually have tenants who use um, kind of the covered area uh, where the mounted patrol unit used to be, as well as the warehouse where their offices used to be. They've been broken into over the past couple of months, and we wanna make sure that we're being kind of good landlords and good supporters of them as important partners within the community. So it has pretty sizable just kind of site management issues that we're looking at, um, particularly given some immediate kind of uh, recent break-ins as well as development. And so we wanna make sure as we're undertaking engagement with a community group around development, we're really sharing what those issues are and what those trade-offs are and and, And this gets back to your original question of kind of how are we doing work differently, which is rather than us making decisions in isolation, really putting out there what are the trade-offs and having the community be in those challenges and trade-offs with us and being transparent um, and genuine about what they are. And so um, it doesn't come as a surprise when there are decisions. It doesn't feel like a decision is made for you 
or at you, but at the very least, there's kind of a conversation that's been had and all of the elements of the decision-making process. You may not agree with our decision, but you understand the elements of the decision-making process that went into it. Sure, sure. Maybe finally, um, I know none of us can predict the future, but um, what's your best gut feeling about where this is going? And if we were to drop in 10 years from now, what we might see there, do you feel like it's just kind of inevitable that this flour milling, mill building is going to have to come down and that we're going to be seeing affordable housing and other things on this site eventually? Or do you still feel like um, there's some other kind of future that could that could make preservationists happy and um, be an equitable, um, responsible way of dealing with this? That's a great question. I, I would say there will always be some combination of open space and private development and that the private development will likely move in the direction of market housing that provides inclusionary housing. Um, you know, ultimately, um, ultimately the levers Prosper Portland has is as a property owner. And so we will defer a lot to what is the private development community able to bring to bear and and kind of respond in like to that. And so the level of the ratios of those two will respond to what's happening in in the market. Um, And that's what you've seen over time in terms of some of the iterations of our development partnerships is kind of they're proposing what they're able to bear in the market and then making a request for public investment. And if we don't have that scale of investment to make, ultimately you don't have a deal that can happen. And so the more we can get clear about what does the what's the private development um, market and community able to perform from a housing perspective? What are they able to perform from a preservation perspective of the mill? What are they able to perform in terms of an open space function? We know those are the those are the critical pieces and respond to the framework plan goals. Um, and ultimately, we really are going to rely on the private community to kind of deliver the the large lift to make that happen and kind of make sure that we're being transparent with our community partners in understanding where are we as an agency, what are we able to bring to bear, given the other priorities of Old Town and Broadway Corridor, and what is the private market able to bring to bear? I see. I see. Well, uh Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, I think I've learned a lot, and and I know it's a tough nut to crack like we talked about, um, but um, I'm excited to see what happens there. And, uh, you know, whether it's affordable housing or something else, I can see the value in having some feet on the ground there one way or the other, and I think that's the thing we can all agree on. Absolutely. Great. Well, thanks again for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. Yeah, thank you. Another quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials. If you're a homeowner, you might want to go online and check out Mutual's Natural Stone Catalog. 
at mutualmaterials.com forward slash resources. You can also visit their showroom, for now by appointment, that is, at 2175 Northwest Raleigh Street. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest. All right. Thanks again to Lisa and Chet for joining us. As we consider Centennial Mills and its fate, there's no doubt that preserving the remaining mill building and water tower is going to be an uphill climb. Fully renovating it would probably make the mill building unrecognizable, and even leaving it as ruin would still cost money. Then there's the fact that, while going back to the original idea of more riverfront green space is appealing, we do already have a lot of parks in the downtown core, and our limited civic budget might be better spent in communities further from the city center that lack such amenities. Even so, I'd like to revisit once more the idea of turning Centennial Mills into what I call a ruins park. Not because I think that's what will happen, I'm not sure I do, but simply because they can be amazing. In an essay called The Poetry of Decay, Mark Minkjen writes, quote, While some consider the unfinished or collapsing parts of the city as ugly or disturbing, others feel they make an area more interesting than the picture-perfect urban fabric. The city's scars are stimuli for the mind. They raise questions about memories and imaginations of a foregone past and of a potential future. They visualize the passage of time and the inevitability of collapse, reminding us of our own transience. End quote. There's a long tradition of artists taking inspiration from classical ruins. In the 18th century, European painters like Giovanni Piranesi and Robert Hubert became famous for depicting the ruins of Rome and Athens and even imagining their own cities as future ruins. In more recent times, industrial ruins have become popular. Maybe in part that's a matter of nostalgia because America over recent decades amidst an era of globalization has seen its manufacturing base diminish substantially as we became a tech and service-based economy. Yet I think it's more than yearning for bygone blue-collar days that makes industrial ruins hard to look away from. There is a kind of pure functionality and often a huge scale. As Chet Orloff talked about, these are actually scary places to the uninitiated. Yet these mammoth operations also engender in us a kind of wonder. It's why parks born from industrial ruins have been built in a number of European countries. It reminds me of a time in my life 25 years ago when I was first dating my partner, Valerie. We were living in New York City at the time, but Valerie was from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, one of America's quintessential Rust Belt towns. In those days, we would go there fairly often to visit Valerie's parents, and I was always amazed as we came into the city by bus how the former Bethlehem steel plant still towered over the whole city, even though it had been shut down for something like two decades. It was all hulking smokestacks and intersecting pipes, and it was breathtaking. I remember Valerie telling me that back during her childhood, when Bethlehem Steel was still operating, at night you could see it glowing, not from lights, but from giant vats of molten liquid steel. By the 1980s, the glow was gone as the mill shut down. But eventually, much of the huge Bethlehem Steel plant along the Lehigh River was redeveloped, in a combination of historic preservation and new construction. Not all of it is pretty. I mean, there's a Sands Casino there, for God's sake. But it's an example of preserving industrial ruins, creating public space by the river, and underwriting much of it by leveraging private development. In Portland's case, we don't want a casino. At least I don't. Even so, 
if the city commits itself fully, then a future is still possible here where historic ruin and contemporary place not just coexist, but bring out the best in each other. I mean, people like spending time in places like this. Granted, a lot of the original atmosphere has already been lost now that the 12 buildings have dwindled down to one. The flour mill and its water tower look a little lonely, yet they would still make an ideal industrial monument set in a green space. Maybe, now that I think about it, what I really want is for them to just spend the money to seismically stabilize this building nobody will occupy, because that's still far less expensive and far more realistic than forcing new development here where it's really not meant to go. The writers of the original master plan must have inherently known this a generation ago. After all, they just built Waterfront Park downriver downtown. And who doesn't like a park on the river? I can't speak for anyone else, but I think Centennial Park has a nice ring to it. In Search of Portland has been brought to you by X-Ray FM. Thanks to our volunteer producer, Jonathan Covington Brim. Another big thank you to the band Beauty Pill and songwriter Chad Clark for providing music for In Search of Portland. Thanks as well to Maxwell Griffin for graphic design, including our podcast logo, and to Nikolai Kruger for creating original artwork to go with each building we feature on In Search of Portland. In fact, you can find every episode of In Search of Portland at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you made it this far, thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time on In Search of Portland. Bye for now.